Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a tremendous delight for me to be here with you, to be opening God's word with you, to be singing truth of the gospel with you, to be praying with you. It is just a, a, a super joy for my, my family and I to be here with you guys today and even uh, for, for part of this summer that we've been here. So um, let me just briefly say, uh, as you know, my name is John Paul. Uh, we became members here at Grace Church of the Valley in 2006, and then in 2019, you sent us to Uganda, um, and we've been serving there for two years, um, and it's just been a tremendous blessing to not only serve there, but to serve there knowing um, that this church here is faithfully praying for us, faithfully supporting us, and partnering with us. We feel a sense of your partnership, so let me extend my gratitude there. But that is not what we have come to this moment for. We've come to hear from God's word. So if you would, please open Colossians chapter 3. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. As you turn there, let me give you some brief background on this text. So Colossians chapter 3. So Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae. And Paul, as far as we can tell, never visited Colossae. He says in chapter 2 verse 1, he's never seen him face to face. Um, probably what happened was Epaphras was converted under Paul's ministry, possibly in Ephesus. We see this in Acts chapter 19 during his third missionary journey, and he took the gospel to Colossae. Now, five or seven years have passed in Colossae. They're, the church is there. It's established. It's growing. Paul is now in prison in Rome, and Epaphras comes and visits him and says, Paul, we've got problems in our church. We've got some issues. And so Paul sits down and he pens this letter in response. He pens this letter in response to those issues. It's hard to tell exactly what the issues are that are happening in the Colossian church, but we have some hints in chapter 2, verse 8, and then later on in chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. It seems like what's going on there is that they didn't deny that Christ was necessary for salvation, but they did deny that Christ was sufficient for living the Christian life. And this is seen in the warning in 2 verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In 2, 16 through 23, there's a few other warnings there. And so, we come to our text, in which Paul is going to give us some basic instructions for gospel growth. Basic instructions for gospel growth. He's going to answer questions like, I'm a Christian, so now what? And how do I grow in obedience and holiness? And what does it mean to live like a Christian? Those are the kinds of questions that he's going to answer for us. So now that you're there, would you please follow along with me as I read aloud from Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, 
the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, would you please fill our hearts and our minds with right thoughts about you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts this morning be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So what we're going to see this morning in Colossians chapter 3 is a basic pattern of Christian growth. And it comes to us in three simple steps. And they are these. Look up, put off, put on. Look up, put off, put on. How many steps? Great, you're awake. Awesome. (laughs) Three steps. Look up, put off, put on. And we're going to see that in our text. So we're going to dive right in here. In verses 1 through 4, we see Paul giving two commands, and they're similar. He says, seek the things above, where Christ is, and set your minds. Literally, think. It's a command. You need to think about this. Think on things above. Right? Basically, I've summarized it as look up. But before we consider these two commands we need to look very carefully at the very first two words of this passage. It says, if, then. If, then. That then is a connecting word pointing back to what Paul has just talked about in chapter 2. It's a contrast to the misguided ways that the Colossian church is trying to live out the Christian life. They're doing it the wrong way, basically. What they're doing is they're, they're elevating human tradition, precepts, and teachings which may appear wise, but in fact they're worthless for stopping the indulgence of the flesh, according to verse 23. The Colossian church was becoming, in, becoming interested in human philosophies and traditions. Theories and experiences promised human flourishing, but they failed to follow God's pattern for living the Christian life. In fact, we could summarize the message of the book of Colossians as this, Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Paul is saying these deceitfully interesting theories are wrong-headed. Therefore, put your minds on things above. So he's making a contrast here when he starts chapter 3. And now the if. That if introduces a condition. It introduces a condition. And the condition is this. If you have been raised with Christ. Right? 
Or you could say, if you have been converted. Or if you have been born, born again. Right? The first concern of Paul is whether or not you yourself are, in fact, a Christian. The beginning of growing as a Christian is first, very first, to know and understand and believe the gospel and be saved. Right? It's vital that this is the first step. Because if you are not a Christian, you can, by efforts, change unhealthy patterns in your life, but remain under God's judgment. So I worked with a man who had been clean and sober for 22 years. And he was pleased with that. And I asked him one day when I was working with him, I said, what, what is the point of being clean and sober? And his response to me was, to have a better life. And in the world's estimation, he has a better life, right? But in God's estimation, he's only substituted, he, I'm sorry, he's only submitted to the worldly wisdom of do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, and he's exchanged one idol for another more socially acceptable one, that of having a better life. But apart from Christ, he's still under God's judgment, right? So how then are we first to please God? First, we must be raised with Christ. Apart from Christ, we are dead and we're destined for God's wrath and hell. We must have new spiritual life in Christ. Now, how does that happen? How does someone get saved? Well, each week, in this church, the gospel of salvation is preached, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not run past that, but let's review that now together. Right? It's the good news, Jesus Christ, contained in the Bible, by which God saves sinners. The gospel is a message from God, and it teaches us that God is holy. He's the creator. He's devoted to his own glory. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The gospel also teaches us that all people are sinful and under God's wrath and condemned because of that sin. In Romans 3.10, it says, No one is righteous, no, not one. In Romans 3.23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Close to our passage in Colossians 2.13, it says, We were dead in our trespasses. Sin leads to death. Our sin makes us guilty before God. and Because he is holy, he punishes all sin. But the gospel also teaches us that Jesus Christ received God's punishment for sin on behalf of his people. Colossians 2.14 goes on and describes God as canceling the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. Pop quiz, who was nailed to the cross? Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, right? He gave himself on the cross to receive the punishment for sin. My sin debt against God was paid for by Christ's death, right? Now, Jesus didn't stay dead, but he proved the validity of his death as an acceptable sacrifice by rising from the dead. He also proved his power over sin and death. But this payment of sin and death only applies to those who repent and believe. So the gospel comes with a gracious command of God to repent and believe. The benefits of salvation are received by faith in Jesus Christ, which is itself a gift from God. So before we go any farther, we need to ask, have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your eternal soul? The greatest challenge in your life is not financial. It's not medical. It's not in your family. 
It's not related to your job. The greatest challenge in your life is God's wrath against you because of sin. And your only hope is to be raised with Christ, the holy and righteous Savior. Are you depending on Christ for salvation? It's fruitless for us to go on and talk about gospel growth unless we have this very clear in our hearts and our minds. This is the non-negotiable step one. And the danger here is that we would go on to describe how to grow as a Christian, but you're not actually saved. It would be like watering a field that hasn't been planted, right? right? The seed, the actual source of spiritual life who is Christ has not been implanted in you, and so there would not be any real growth, possibly artificial growth, but no real growth, no spiritual growth, no spiritual fruit would be possible unless you are in Christ, unless you are raised with Christ, according to Paul. All right. So, if you have been raised with Christ, now we turn to his two commands. Step one, look up. He says, seek and set our minds on things above. Christian growth requires active mental work to put our minds on things above. What is above? It's Christ. Right? That's what he says, where Christ is. Put our minds on Jesus Christ. We must look up, not to the ceiling, not to the top of a mountain, not to the stars, but to Christ himself who is in heaven, which means we must be thinking about Jesus Christ. The battle between our flesh and the spirit occurs on this table of our mind, right? So how do we succeed in this? Later, he says we must let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, meaning that gospel growth comes through knowing biblical truth in greater depth and breadth. Are you exposing yourself to good biblical teaching regularly? Are you exposing yourself to God's word regularly? Let me encourage you. Your threshold for missing Sunday morning church where the Bible is taught and sung and prayed and preached, your threshold for missing Sunday morning church should be very high. We need this regularly in our lives. In fact, God designed it so that we would meet regularly and be encouraged and challenged and exhorted and rebuked and comforted by his word. So, we must look up. We must seek and set our minds on Christ. Now, in verses 3 and 4, he gives us some very interesting reasons why we should do that. Reason number one is in the past. Reason number one is in the future. Okay? Look right here. Verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a fundamental change that God has worked in the life of every one of his children This death is a spiritual but a real death to the elemental principles of this world, according to Colossians 2.20, as he says. Romans 6 says it like this. We have died to sin, as in sin is no longer our master, but Christ is. We're now free to obey God, whereas before we were slaves to sin. So we must look back and thank God for our union with Christ in death and resurrection. Of course, this is displayed in baptism, right? It's something that's already happened. But he gives us a second reason. In the future, in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's something in the future, right? We look forward to glorification with Christ. That comforts us. That encourages us. When we look around and we see suffering in the world, we can look forward and say, yeah, we're going to be glorified with Christ someday. This is not all there is. There is a great and certain future hope, right? I don't know if it's my age or living in Africa, but... In the last two years, I have become more conscious of the frailty 
of my flesh than I ever had before. I felt closer to death than I ever have on some days. Um, But rather than discouraging us, we should take joy that we will be glorified. Um, He says in Philippians 3.21, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So there's two good reasons to look up. We can look back and see what Christ has done, and we can look forward to see what he's promised. Right? So we must look up. We must seek and set our minds on things above because he saved us in the past, and he will save us all the way to heaven. Point number one, look up. Point number two, put off. Put off. We see this in verses five through nine. Now, in this section, he gives us a vice list. We've heard of virtue lists, love, joy, peace, patience, those kinds of things, but this is a vice list. So vices are actions or attitudes that displease God, that are contrary to God's law, right? And he tells us we have to put these to death. In fact, he commands us, the Lord here commands us to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us. Notice this is not a negotiation, This is not a diplomatic discussion of the relative merits of certain behaviors or attitudes. Sins are to be systematically executed and expelled from the believer's life. This is a search and destroy mission commanded to us by the most important authority in our lives, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's repeated many times in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1 calls us to be holy. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us to walk as children of the light. 1 John 3 says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. God expects his children, those who represent him, to be growing in personal holiness. It's not an optional upgrade for really serious Christians, but rather an order from our master. Now notice, the first four items on this list are related to, to sexuality. Sexual sin of any type has no place in the Christian's life. In fact, he uses four different terms to describe sexual sin right there. Those descriptors cover every aspect of sexual sin. Fornication, adultery, lustful feelings, impure actions, thoughts, motives, behaviors. There's no wiggle room for rationalization here, brothers and sisters. The late night porn binge is sin. It must be put to death. The lustful glance at a shirtless hiker or jogger is sin. It must be put to death. The careful observation of certain advertisements is sin. That must be put to death. Romance novels stoking imaginary fantasies are sin. Those must be put to death. Right? Next, he calls out covetousness, which is idolatry. It's not wrong to have desires, but desire that is covetousness is identified by wanting something in such a way that your satisfaction or your security depends on obtaining that or having that thing. And back in 2006, I started a hobby. I purchased a 1983 Mercedes-Benz 300D turbo diesel, and I determined that I would make this thing run on vegetable oil because I thought I was going to save money. That was a lie. (laughs) But I really enjoyed this. 
I started working on it, I started researching, and I found, though, that after a year or two, I was dreaming about this in my bed at night. Every spare moment, I would hop online and do some research to find out some other modification or upgrade or something like that. Then I found myself not only dreaming about it, but late at night, I would be under the car turning wrenches, right? Sometimes it would produce conflict between my wife Sarah and I. I would want to, you know, buy this new part or buy this other whatever it was to, to support this thing. I wanted to buy this new tool. See, my mind was set on an earthly thing. It happened little by little, by degrees over time. It wasn't that I went out and said, I am now going to have an idol. Mm, you know, whatever it was, right? No, not like that. It was just little by little over time, right? It had become an idol. I would feel frustrated when I wasn't able to devote time to it or money to it. I was making sacrifices to it. Now, mercifully, when our second child, Jack, was born, the stress of having another baby exposed this idolatry in my life and sold the car. Is it wrong to enjoy cars? Thank you, Vance. <laughs> you are correct. It is not wrong to enjoy cars. Is it wrong to have a hobby? No, right? Is it wrong to hold an earthly thing so dear and precious that your satisfaction and security depends on it? It is. In fact, it's destructive for your soul. Is your heart tempted to covet something? An object? A style? A look? A vehicle? A spouse? A device? A property? A position? Or a job? Our hearts can turn anything into an idol. This heart Idolatry must be put to death. Finally, he lists anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. We're not going to go through these in great detail, but we can say that malice and slander are kind of related to character assassination, right? So someone that we maybe has authority over us, makes a decision, maybe a spouse or a boss or a colleague, politician, anyone really, and instead of discussing the issue or overlooking the offense or submitting, we assassinate their character in our minds, right? We say things like, well, if he wasn't so self-centered and ignorant and arrogant, he would have made the right decision. What an idiot, <laughs> right? If the people running this thing weren't so stupid and full of themselves, we'd be somewhere by now. Those are slanderous thoughts that travel through our minds, right? These kinds of thoughts and the simmering anger behind them are dis pleasing to God and the work of our flesh. Remember what James says in James chapter 1, verse 20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, right? We must put these to death. Shouldn't Christians rather be known for the purity of their speech? He says, put away, what does he say? Put away obscene talk from your mouth. The pro prohibition against obscene talk includes four-letter words, but also topics and subjects that are not fitting for Christians to discuss. James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It's trash. That's how much it's worth, right? If our tongue is not bridled, right? So we have to be very careful of that. We have to put this off. We have to put to death these things, we need to put them off. Sexual sin, verbal sin, hate, lying. In fact, he says, we used to live like this. The sewage of sin used to be the swamp that we swam in every day, right? And because of that, God was storing up wrath against us. 
In our context in Uganda, there's no culture with a history of Reformation or Christian heritage. Sometimes this is painfully evident. We have a grandmother in our community, grandmother, who instructed her six-year-old daughter, I'm sorry, six-year-old granddaughter, excuse me, how to get a cell phone. And how do you do that? Give the men what they want, and they'll give you what you want. Grandma, six-year-old, right? Or if you're in a developed nation, maybe you're tempted by Netflix, sexualized productions featuring children. Put that to death. Put that to death. We used to participate without reservation in these things. We used to enjoy sin, right? May the Lord have mercy May the Lord have mercy on us for those wicked and destructive acts and attitudes. Christian, you have been transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son, right? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So point number two is this. Put off, put it to death. Those hedonistic behaviors and attitudes that are pagan destroy the body, destroy the soul, destroy the church, and destroy society as a whole. So, point number one, look up, look to Christ. Point number two, put off. Now we move on to the positive instruction. Point number three, put on. In verses 10 through 17, Paul lists out several things that we are to put on. Compassion, kindness, humility, and so on. So even though he's using the metaphor of clothes, he's saying put away or lay aside, and he's, he's telling us to put on. He's not telling us to physically put on love. Finding a shirt or a bumper sticker a ring, a necklace that says compassion may be a useful reminder, but in all likelihood, it will do little to transform your character. I remember in high school, I had a, uh, I had a bracelet, and it had these letters on it, WWJD, right? And uh, how many of you have ever heard of that? Anybody ever heard of that? Yeah, so those letters stand for what would Jesus do, right? What would Jesus do? Now, it's actually a really good mental exercise to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? We're supposed to imitate Christ. So yes, let's think about what would Jesus do. But in all honesty, <laughs> for me, I was generally a very selfish jerk in high school. And looking back, I don't think that wearing a, bra- a bracelet transformed my character all that much. In fact, it might have given me a nice excuse to say, hey, look, I'm pretty religious, and I'm doing okay as a Christian, and then I would rationalize my sin that way, right? So he's not telling us to do a physical activity with clothing, but he's giving us a call to conform to Christ and obey him. We must reckon ourselves as God declares us, right? In Romans 6, 11, he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive, with, alive to God in Christ Jesus, we must consider ourselves according to God's work in our lives and according to Christ. And here we are, back to looking up. Sometimes theologians talk about the, the difference between our position in Christ and our practice as Christians. And it's a useful distinction. So our position in Christ talks about what God has accomplished in us. He declares us righteous. That's justification, right? But the Bible also very clearly talks about our practice, our attitudes and behaviors as representatives of Christ. In Hebrews 12, 14, it says, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we are to grow in the practice of holiness. We are to grow in our Christian behaviors. So we may ask ourselves, well, who, who is responsible 
for this gospel growth? Or we could say, who is responsible for this sanctification, this becoming holy in the Christian life? Is it God working in us? Or is it us working in us as we grow as Christians? And the answer is, it's both. It's both. This is different than God's work in converting us where he alone works. But in growing in holiness, it's both. Now, where do we see that, you say? Well, our passage, in fact, captures this tension, but doesn't relieve it. I would draw your attention to verse 12 and verse 14, where he says, put on. Even verse 15, where he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. These are commands for us to actively obey. If we don't do them, we are disobeying God. But notice, in 3 verse 10, he says something else. The new nature of a believer is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Is being renewed. That's a passive verb right there. And it suggests that God is the agent of renewal. Right? The new self is receiving the action of God, the renewer. Right? We could also look just one or two pages back in your Bible to Philippians 2, 12 through 13, where it says, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Struggle. Find out what pleases the Lord. Imitate Christ, right? But then he goes on in verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's both, right? Now, we don't have time to say more than that on that. We don't have time to look in in detail at all these virtues, but these are the virtues of Christ. In a sense, we're called to put on Christ. Now, there's one thing that I wanted to zoom in here and focus on in verse 11. Right here, God gives us specific teaching related to race, cultural differences, and economic status. Are these hot topics? Wow. God gives us his wisdom on these things, right? These are differences we have in the body of Christ. But they are not to be what define our identity. The non-Christian will emphasize these earthly distinctions and make much of their seeming importance in establishing identity. So, by, for example, I could say, well, I'm Armenian. My people have been subject to genocide. Respect me. You don't know the suffering that we've been through. Right? But by contrast, in Christ's church, these earthly distinctions are not what give definition and identity to God's people. Again, by example, my my Armenian heritage, my immigrant background are relatively unimportant compared to the fact that I am a descendant of Adam. And as such, I was born a slave to sin and destined for the wrath of God. But now I've been regenerated, I've been saved by grace, and I call God himself as my own father. And so do all who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what should define us. Do I deny the heritage of my flesh? Do I deny my my family background? No, I thank God for his kind providence in allowing me to live in this time, in this place, with this family, the racial background that he's given me. But Christ is all. It says it right there. Christ is all. And he is the all for every believer. Christ is our total concern. Christ is our total joy. 
Christ is in every believer, and the greatest identity marker of every believer and of Christ's church. It's him. These earthly distinctions between us fade in importance compared to our new identity in Christ. One of the joys of working in other places is finding other believers from vastly different backgrounds and knowing an immediate sense of brotherhood because we are one in Christ, right? Now, we could take this one step further. We could say, we could ask ourselves as Christians, are we signaling the virtues of Christ, right? These Christ-like qualities that he's listed out here, compassion, kindness, humility, forgiveness, bearing with each other, love, these qualities, these virtues are what should mark us unique kindness and forgiveness when they're undeserved because the Lord himself has forgiven us. Humility, patience, and compassion should be virtues on display that signal our allegiance to Christ. Are we more concerned to identify ourselves with our earthly heritage or our heavenly inheritance? The Bible teaches that our race, tribe, and tongue matter. In Revelation 7 verse 9, they're all there around the throne worshiping Jesus. Every language it says, right? But it's far more important (laughs) that we are all worshiping Jesus than that we are ensuring that our identity as an Armenian, as an American, as a Mexican, as an African, as a business owner, as a day laborer is known and respected because Christ is all. Christ is all. He goes on to say the greatest of these Virtues is love. Are you loving your neighbor in this weird and confusing time? Or are you impatient and uncompassionate toward them? Are you loving your pastors and elders by submitting to their leadership? Or are you slandering them behind their backs as they work diligently to lead the church in a trying time? Are we Christians better known for loving our government leaders by faithfully praying for them as we are commanded to in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Or are we better known for expressing our righteous opinions of our civil government, which Christ does not command us to do? Are we signaling that the peace of Christ is ruling in our hearts by bearing with one another? Or are we consumed with things that are on earth and biting and devouring each other over differences that we may look back on in 10 years with shame? Are we looking up to Christ as we wrestled with how to steward our bodies? Vaccine, no vaccine, mask, no mask, right? Or are we just fighting? No, no. Christian, we must put on these virtues. We must put on Christ himself, right? We must put on patience, bearing with each other, If one has a complaint against each other, forgive each other, right? That's what should mark us. Church, we must, must, must be putting on the virtues of Christ. Now, after he lists these virtues, there's so much more he says, but we're just going to focus on one thing here. He repeats it three times, in fact. He instructs us three times to do something. It's once in verse 15, once in verse 16, and once in verse 17. Take a look. See if you can see what it is. It's repeated there three times. Nailed it. It's to be thankful. It's to be thankful, right? 
The fact that he says it three times in three verses should indicate at least a few things to us. First of all, thankfulness is extremely important to God. It's extremely important to God. In fact, we're commanded there in verse 15, be thankful. The fact that it is a command should teach us that thankfulness is not an emotion or a feeling that we wait for. It's a discipline of our heart and mind. Be thankful. Notice that the object of our our thankfulness is clearly stated in verse 17. Right? Thankfulness, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Right? Our thankfulness is to God. We're not thankful in some vague sense to whomever is responsible for some goodness in our lives. James 1.17 clarifies this. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So let me ask you, did you eat this morning? Oh, that's a good gift from God. Did you enjoy these wonderfully smooth and straight paved roads as you guys came here today? Oh, you got here quickly. You probably didn't get in an accident. Your car probably didn't break. You probably weren't sweaty and dusty. That's great, right? That's a good gift from God, right? Thank God that we enjoy a civil government that provides a police force to restrain evil. That's a gift from God, right? That's amazing. That's a, those are wonderful gifts from God. We should be so thankful. But those reasons pale in comparison to the biggest reason that we should be thankful, which Paul has slipped in in verse 12. He slipped it in. The first and greatest reason that we must be thankful is right here. He says, put on then as God's what? Chosen ones. As God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. Are you a Christian? Thank God for his selection of your soul for eternal salvation. Right? You are beloved. You are declared holy in Christ. Thank God Wow. So, we must look up to Christ. We must put off these vices. We must put on the virtues of Christ. And now, let's wrap things up here. Most of us have a sense of what's right and wrong. Most of us have a conscience that's sensitive to the things of the Lord and want to do what's right. But the question for us is, how in the world are we to grow in Christ? Where will we get the power to actually Put to death what's earthly in us. Where will we get the power to put on the virtues of Christ? If we attack sin head on, we may be partially successful. But it's like saying to yourself, stop loving money, stop loving money, stop loving money. Or stop getting angry, stop getting angry, stop getting angry. Stop lusting, stop lusting, stop lusting, right? I'm, if I'm focusing on that, I'm actually repeating to myself what I should be putting off, Right? Repetition is the mother of learning, right? So what do we do? Remember step one. Look up, right? Look to Christ. We continue with Christ and our future is secure in Christ. We must look up to Christ, right? He's the one that is victorious over sin and death. So we know he has power to conquer sin and death. So we know he has power over sin in your own life, right? That's our great and certain hope because he's actually resurrected, but we must be looking to him all the time. Who is he? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let's finish by just taking a look through Colossians 
and seeing what God has revealed about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's set our minds on Christ together right now. That's what we're going to do right now. We're going to start this right now. We're going to practice right now. We're going to look up right now. So listen carefully as we go through Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 3 says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Father. 1 verse 4 teaches us that Christ is the object of our faith. 1.13 says Christ is the king that receives saints into his kingdom. 1.14 says Christ is the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 1.15, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, meaning he's the principal heir of God's promises. In 1.16, by Christ all things were created, and all things were created for Christ. 117, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In 118, Christ is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In 119, Christ is the fullness, I'm sorry, in Christ the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In 120, Christ is the reconciler of all things to God. And Christ was the one who makes peace between you and God by the blood of his cross. In 122, Christ reconciled us to God in his body of flesh by his death. In 122 also, Christ died to present us holy and blameless above reproach before God. Are you getting a little picture of Christ? In 124, Christ was afflicted for the sake of his body, the church. In 126, Christ's indwelling is the mystery hidden for generations. In fact, in 127, Christ, the riches of glory... Is the mystery, I'm sorry, the riches of glory of the mystery is Christ in you. And Christ in you is the hope of glory. In 128, Christ energizes the toil and struggle of his servants that work for your sanctification. Wow, we've seen 20 things right there in one chapter. Let's keep going. In 2-2, Christ is the revelation of God's mysterious work. In 2-3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In 2-6, Christ is received by his people as Lord. In 2-7, God's people are rooted and built up in Christ. In 2-8, Christ is contrary to human tradition and the elemental principles of the world. In 2-9, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In 2-10, God's people have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. In 2-11, in Christ, God's people are circumcised with a spiritual circumcision of the heart. In 2.12, Christ is the one to whom God's people are united in death and powerful resurrection. In 2.13, God made his people alive together with Christ. In 2.14, Christ was nailed to the cross and so bore the record of debt that stood against us. In 2.17, Christ is the substance, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Sabbath and dietary laws. In 2.19, Christ is the head from whom the whole body grows with a growth from God. In 3.1, Christ is above, seated as king and mediator at the right hand of God. In 3.3, Christ is the one in whom believers are hidden. In 3.4, Christ is the life of every believer, and Christ will appear in glory. In 3.11, Christ is in all who are saved regardless of race, culture, economic status. In 3.15, Christ is the one who makes peace. In 3.16, the word of Christ shared is God's means of transforming his people. In 3.17, the name and character of Christ is the manner in which we must do everything. Do you see something, maybe just a tiny glimpse of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Set your minds on Christ. Seek those things that are above, those things of eternal worth. How, how, how do we grow as Christians? How do we grow as a church? Look up, 
to Christ. Put to death what's earthly in you. Put on the virtues of Christ. Christ.